Now, my wife is not in the sermon this morning. She is with the children. And so I needed to do some fact-checking because this is a story about her. There was a time in which she was in college. I had just gotten to know her and was totally blown away with just this passion and zeal and the love of Jesus in her. Well, she demonstrated that when she was working as a nurse or maybe an LPN or whatever her official status was in the hospital working as a nurse. And <clears throat> as a young girl, maybe 20, 21 years old, she loved to tell people about Jesus. She loved to, to just, in her excitement, and she was just always just filled with excitement, bubbling over. It was like, wow, um, effervescent is a toned-down word for her. And she just, she loved to love on people. And there was one particular lady there, and she, she was a Christian, but my, my wife, as, she, as she's talking with her and, and building this relationship, this, and my wife actually looked up to her, this girl, this older girl, looks to my wife as a confidant and shares with her a problem that she's going through and a struggle and just this sense of heaviness in her heart as she has made a decision to move in with her boyfriend and live with him. And all that that implies. And my wife just looked at her and called her by name and said, but Jesus says that he's called you as a, as a child of God out of that. And my wife counseled her and my wife called her out and, and challenged her and said, God has so much blessing in store for you if you follow him, but don't cut this off. Don't, don't cut short this passion in following Jesus to cut short his blessing. Follow Jesus with all. And, and she was just, she urged her on. And throughout that summer, they just had a great relationship but the lady never changed. Her friend never changed. And my, my wife's heart, she wasn't my wife at the time, but her heart was so grieved. And she prayed for her constantly. And she, she, she was honestly, by the end of the summer, now she's going, she's in South Florida, by the way, Pembroke Pines, you know, Pembroke Pines General Hospital. Now she's going up north to the University of Delaware. That's actually where we met at an University of Christian Fellowship meeting. And she's finishing out her degree in, in, to become a, uh, what do they call it? A registered, an RN, BSRN, they called it. Anyway, four-year degree in nursing. And she's grieved. And, and she, the, the, her friend just never turned her heart fully back to Jesus and her back on her sin. And we sang a song about this as we turn our back on sin and now we're running after God and embracing his grace and embracing all that he has for us. And we just finished up uh, last week a series entitled The Drama of Grace. And in that, mess, th that series, we realized that even though as followers of Jesus Christ and inheritors of this amazing blessing and inheritance of Jesus Christ, that we're going to encounter struggles, hard struggles, crises, times in which our hearts ache so desperately. And in those moments, God is allowing this to press us and move us to him, to cry out to him. You might remember in one message, I said, we have three choices, basically. We can either say, God, I'm turning away from you. You're not worth it. I don't even believe you exist anymore, because if you did, then why this and why this? And some of us, we turn away and we follow the things of the world. Others of us, we shift life into neutral, okay? We're just weary. We're so we, we, we give, we, we feel like we're serving, and we're not seeing God 
and coming to the bargaining table saying, okay, Mike, you're doing this, now I'm going to do this. And many of us as Christians, we have this concept of, of a bargaining table. God, if I served you, then what are you going to do for me? And, and if we don't see enough from God, we say, why? Why sacrifice? Why am I giving my time? Why am I pursuing you? Why am I giving up all of these sins? And we shift life into neutral. And then there are those of us caught up in this drama of grace that even in the midst of this struggle, we press into God and it's there that we discover his immeasurable, boundless grace, right? Grace that is sufficient, 2 Corinthians 12. When I'm weak, that's actually when I am strong, Paul says, because I'm not relying on myself, my resources, but I am completely relying upon him. Grace, you remember the definition we gave to that word? Everything that God has that we do not but desperately need. See, when in those trials we're pressing into God, that's when he, that's when he pours out that grace. However he chooses to do it, not on our timetable, not according to what we want necessarily, but he does exactly what we need, his grace in that moment. So what we're going to do is, is I, I'm going to read a passage from Matthew. I want us to talk about now how we move on. And we're going to look at these two words, salt and light. We're going to need to understand them today because they're going to have everything to do with you know, about this series of salt and light. And now how do we live out these principles of salt and light in impacting our world? Amen. And that's what my daughter, excuse me, that's what my wife was trying to do at that hospital. She was trying to impact. And I'm just going to let you know right up front, many times as you are pressing and as you are seeking, praying for people, seeking to minister to them, love on them, show them Jesus in your life and in your words, you're not going to see the fruit of it. Now, we're praying this year, God, we want to see that fruit. But if he doesn't, are you going to turn away? Are you going to shift life into neutral or are you going to press in? Because sometimes it is hard, and Jesus says, but Mike, keep your hand to the plow. All right, Nathan, keep your hand to the plow. Sarah, okay, Karen, keep your hand to the plow. Keep pursuing me. And it's hard. How do we do that? How do we let our light shine? How do we be the salt of the earth? My wife tried. Now, I'm going to actually come back to that story, by the way, because I'm not done with it, if you were wondering. But let me read to you right now from Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to start with verse 13, and I'm going to read through verse 16. Are you there with me? Matthew 5, 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people put a light, excuse me, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Lord, I just ask right now, by your grace, would you give us eyes to see? Would you give us ears to hear and hearts to consider and walk in the truths that we learn today? By your grace, by your spirit, by your truth, 
We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This concept of salt and light is embedded in a context. I didn't read the 12 verses before or the several verses, actually the rest of the chapter uh, after it. But what we're going to find is these, what they call beatitudes. The beatitudes precede this in the first several verses. There's eight of them. Beatitude, I used to think, meant your attitude should be this. Be attitude, right? Well, it actually comes from a Latin word that means blessing. has nothing to do with attitude. Well, I guess it kind of does um, when, when we're talking about poor in spirit and mourning and um, meekness and hungering and thirsting after righteousness. That certainly does communicate attitude. But it's actually from a Latin word meaning blessed. What we discover here, though, are character qualities that we are to possess living in the kingdom of God. Even to the point where others look at us shining that light for Christ and persecute us. And he said, you're blessed if you're persecuted. You must be doing something right now, not persecuted for sinning, not persecuted for uh, offending people. That's not what he's talking about. Persecuted for following after Jesus, living out these beatitudes. This leads us then to this concept of salt and light, living in the kingdom of God, in the character of Christ. Now, after it, he talks about the law, but very specifically, he says this, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And you say, ouch, especially if you're a Pharisee, a religious scholar in the law. Wow, Jesus, what do you mean by this? And so he gives six examples in the remainder of that chapter about the letter of the law, like do not murder, and he then introduces this concept that we call the spirit or the heart of the law, how you actually live it out. You've heard it said, don't murder, but I tell you, don't even hate your brother. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. Great, that's right, don't commit adultery, but don't lust in your heart either. And so he gets at the heart of the law. He kind of extrapolates, he kind of unfolds the, the law of God in how we're supposed to live it, not just outwardly, but in our heart, in the secret of our heart as well. That's the type of righteousness, not just on the outward looking good, but in the heart. So that's the context of this concept of salt and light. Well, what is salt? I think we, we actually know a little bit where he's going this, with this and what he means by by this, using this idea of salt as an analogy, because he says if the salt has lost its saltiness, and the Greek word that's used there actually means flavor or savor. It, it, it goes on and it means uh, flavorlessness or being tasteless, insipid. Now, I'll be honest with you, I like my salt. I need to be careful. Yes, preach to me. Yes. I need to be careful about my salt intake. My bad cholesterol mm, is a little bad, but it's not too, too bad. And so sometimes I fudge with it, but I do like my salt on my vegetables. I do like my salt, especially on my red meat, which I should probably cut back to. I hear you. Yes. But you know what? I, I, I do like my salt. 
I, I do remember this one, reading an article about this one guy, and I'm getting off track here. I'll keep it short, but he loved salt so much, he would put it on his ice cream. <laughs> oh, and and, and he, they said that they discovered, you know, his salt habits, and he put salt on everything, literally, ice cream. <laughs> we pray for him. But what happened is he drank, one day he drank so much water that he fainted, and apparently flushed out a lot of the sodium or, or whatever it is of his body, and he fainted, whatever the technical term for that was. And he was rushed to the hospital and so on, and they discovered that this was happening. But I, I, I'm almost a salt-aholic or salt addict. I do like my salt. But Jesus is saying here, number one, salt is used to bring taste to something, to help you enjoy those vegetables that have been overcooked. Then, of course, my wife never does that. But it, it's when I do the vegetables. That's when I need the extra salt, right? And so, hey, tasteful. Salt brings taste and flavor to something. As a matter of fact, if you were to turn to the book of Titus, you can do that in Titus chapter 2. He talks a little bit about this, though he doesn't use this uh, analogy or illustration of salt. He says this. Now listen to them. In verse chapter 2, Titus, verse 8, he says, so, excuse me, he's talking about in your teaching showed integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned. So how you talk, how you live, in a way that can't be condemned, in a way people can't speak against it, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. So he's talking to Titus, uh, a member of his apostolic entourage that is now in Crete. He left him there to kind of help set things in order, the churches and the various towns in order. That's why he's using us, because Titus is a part of Paul's apostolic entourage. So, Titus, watch how you live so that it lends credibility to our ministry of proclaiming the gospel. Church, Jesus has called us to follow him, to allow our lives as we are in society to reflect Christ and make the gospel attractive. Now, look at verse 10, because verse 10 explains it even more, so that in, well, um, he, he's talking to slaves. I'll just cut it short right there, halfway through verse 10, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior, what? Attractive. That we are called to live our lives in a way that when unbelievers look on, there is something in them that wants that. If you were to turn to Acts chapter 2, and the book of Acts is about the early church and how the, the gospel was sowed into so many different cultures and just exploded in those cultures. And in chapter 2, we're talking about Jerusalem and how the gospel exploded. It says that the Christians found favor with the other Jews who had rejected Jesus as Messiah but they lived in such a way as it made the gospel attractive. And it says this, that people were added to the church daily. Yes, the apostles were evangelizing. There were miracles taking place. But the church was salt in their city, the other Jews. And, and these are people 
who had just persecuted, just a few months earlier, persecuted and crucified Jesus, the very Savior and Lord that these apostles are preaching about and these Christians are radically living for. And so what happens is these Christians live in such a way, church, listen to me, they live in such a way that makes the gospel and the teaching of Jesus attractive. And these people who had been hostile are now open and every day people are surrendering to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's salt. That's amazing. That is what it means to be salt in this world. Salt also, excuse me, Meredith, when, when she lived uh, in, in Pembroke Pines, when she worked at that hospital, that was her goal. She just wanted to exude Jesus' love. She wanted to exude Jesus' joy. She wanted to exude Jesus' faithfulness and self-control and the integrity of Christ. And so she did whatever she could to live like Jesus and talk about him. And she managed to be salt in that hospital. That's what we're called to. And as we go through this series, we need to find out how can we do this? How do we do this? We're going to scratch the surface today. We're kind of just laying a, a, a bit of groundwork. The second thing that salt does is salt preserves. Now, we don't necessarily see a whole lot of that in our day. I accept, I mean, an example may, comes to my mind, and I think this is a correct example, but how they treat ham. Don't they use salt to help preserve ham? I believe they do. And that's why, that's, for me, that's why ham tastes so good. It's really salty. I love it, right? And, um, oh, my. Well, the truth is that salt preserves. And you, you salt the meat, and then you can dry it out, and you've got things like beef jerky. I love beef jerky. When, when I was growing up, we took a trip out west. Oh, yeah. And for five cents, you would get a stick of beef jerky like this. It was awesome. I love beef jerky. But they, they pretty much only sold it out west. We, we traveled all the way out to what Yellowstone National Park, uh, the uh, Sequoia National Park out in California. Uh, I think I'm remembering the statistics, correct, statistics correctly. We went through 27 states one summer. See, my dad was an English teacher, so there were times in which he took months, two months off during the summer. So he said, guys, we're going on a vacay. And off we went in our, wow, fire engine red Chevy van, 440 engine. Anyway, we, we went out 27 states. We had a great time. Beef jerky the whole way there and all the way back, I guess until we crossed the Mississippi, right? But that's what salt does. Salt preserves. But it is so important for us as Christians to be salt in our society because Proverbs says righteousness exalts a nation. We have example of the Canaanites in Genesis through Deuteronomy and Joshua. The Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, you know, all of those ites, but they were living in such a way that there was, like, for example, in Sodom and Gomorrah, or about Sodom and Gomorrah, with Lot there and such, and Abraham, there was a cry, Genesis 18, a cry went up to the Lord because of the evil in that city. There were Canaanites, Amorites, and God brought destruction upon Sodom and Gomorrah. 
the, the sin level in those cities had risen to such a degree that God said, I, I, I can't tolerate this because it is so caustic in this world. And so consequently, they had become, I'll put it this way, ripe for judgment. So God uh, wants us to be salt, living for Christ, and in living these moral principles in his kingdom, seeing that then woven into the fabric of a culture. Eventually, our goal, church, is that as we're living for Jesus, that we're impacting the culture around us, all right? The laws that are established in this country, you know, today, very popular, separation of church and state. Well, that's actually a biblical concept if you weren't aware of that. However, what they usually mean by separation of church and state is separation of morals, separation of anything about Jesus and state, and the teaching specifically about Jesus and how to live. Read about them there, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Well, we don't want to do that. Abortion is wrong. Oh, we don't want that. That's religion. Separation of church. No, that is morality. That is Christians. And, and even non-Christians are against abortion. That's being salt in your society. Because if we are not salt, there is a judgment that eventually awaits. The Amorites, God said to the, to the Jews going at, at, during the time of Joshua, going into Canaan, their sin has reached a level it is unbearable. They were sacrificing their children in the fire. They were killing their children. Church, listen, how far away from that is this idea of abortion that has become so rampant and embraced in our culture today? Didn't used to be. Nope. I, I am praying that that eventually be, will be overturned, but here's the truth. Politics can't change people. It can, be, it can make abortions a whole lot less frequent. But what we really need, church, is a revival. What we really need is to see people's hearts changed. But, guys, that's why we need to be salt. That's why we need to make the gospel attractive. That's why we need to kind of set the pace and what it means to live a godly life so that the world, when they look on, they are impacted by that. Do you see? Turn with me to Luke chapter 14. In Luke chapter 14, verse 30, I'm sorry, 34, right? Yeah, 34. The context there is actually loving God with all of our heart so that our love for people can't even be compared to it. That's how much we should love God preeminently above everyone and everything, even my so-called addiction to salt. Got to love Jesus more, right? And so <laughs> what, we're, what, what, what Jesus then goes on to say is, you know, if someone, is, a, a king is considering taking his army against another army, but he has 10,000 and the opposing army has 20,000, he's going to sit down and he's going to count the costs. When a person builds a tower, he calculates the amount it's going to cost. He's going to, he's going to count the cost because he does not want to build half of the tower. Does that sound like something in Orlando? On I-4, the I-4. Anyway, you don't want to build half the tower and leave it. 
a bit embarrassing. Why didn't you plan enough? These are the ideas. And so at the very end of this, he says, unless you give up everything. And as Mark 9.50 puts it, unless you have salt in yourself, unless that spirit of God in us that brings flavor to others, that preserves, not in a condemning way. Jesus, that's not how Jesus lived his life, pointing the finger, but he did call them to repentance. John 8, to the woman who was caught in adultery, go and sin no more. But he was so gracious with her. That's how Jesus called the lost. Go and sin no more. So at the very end of this, this concept of surrendering everything and full commitment to Jesus Christ, he says this in verse 34, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. I'm going to come back to that. This idea of salt in us is the spirit in us. It, it, it is allowing the spirit to emanate and work through us so that we are that salt, that tastefulness, that savoring influence, preserving influence in our society. But it, it is this devotion to Jesus Christ. That's the context here. That, and, and Mark 9.50, it says, have salt in yourself. If you don't have salt in yourself, you're not going to be salty, church. Have salt in yourself. Let the Spirit of God dwell in you richly and live through you. Now, Jesus goes on. I'm going to move on. Jesus goes on, and now he talks about light. That was a pretty quick transition. I'm sorry if, if you wanted a slower transition. But light dispels darkness. Light helps you see. Light reveals things to you. That's the idea of light. And in this dark world where there is a lot of deception, there's a lot of error, there's a lot of falsehood, there's a lot of sin and brokenness, church. In this world, and it's all around us, you can't ex escape it because it's in us too. And we are struggling to be freed from it by the grace of God. He empowers us to do that, but we need that light. That light is truth. It is, I guess you could say it's theological truth. That would be the foundation. But what Jesus really focuses are the implications of that theology and how you're going to choose to live. So we, Jesus is the light of the world. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. Jesus is the light of the world. He, he spoke truth, and he, if I could word it this way, he did truth. He loved. He was filled with joy. He was filled with compassion, forgiveness. He didn't hold grudges, but I tell you what, as gracious and compassionate as he was, he graciously, gently called people out of their sin to follow him. Forsake everything to be my disciple. Be willing to, in your heart to lay it all down. And now let me give you the grace to actually do that, right? So this idea of light, then he says, that's what we are. We, you, are the light of the world. You bring truth with your words and with your actions into this world so that, this is how he concludes, so that the world will look on and because of this light from you, it says, 
And he, he says that that light, in verse 15, he puts, excuse me, 16, he says, let your, shi- let your light shine before men that they may see what? Your good deeds. We need to speak the truth. We need to believe the truth. But it can't stop there. We've got to live the truth. We've got to live for Jesus Christ. Salt and that total commitment to him. And so that's the salt. This is the light. Now that we're called to shine that light so that people see Jesus in us. That's why, that's why Meredith was trying so hard to love on people. She just wanted to shine or show Jesus. She was, she saw herself and part of her mission is she is the light of the world, the light in that hospital. Now, there were other Christians there, yes, of course, but she's doing the best she can to shine her light in that, in that hospital. You know, let's be careful, though, when he says, you are the light of the world, because to use an illustration, the source of our light today, apart from um, man-made light, the real light is the sun. When I was a kid, at night, I looked up into the sky, and I would say, the moon is really shiny tonight. The moon is really glowing tonight. But the truth is, the moon has no light in and of itself. And I think you all know that. But it sure looks like it at night, doesn't it? But it's only because it's reflecting the light. And so, if I could word it this way with this illustration, Jesus is the sun, he's shining the light, and we are the moon, and we are reflecting that light, okay? And I'm going to tell you what, the more you get into the word of God, the more you soak in this truth and pray, God, please bring this truth into my heart. Why? So that I can live it. Not just believe it, so that I can live it. So important, church. So important. Salt, light. Now, I want, to, I want to share with you, uh, how do we do this? And that's really going to be the, the, the controlling question throughout this series. How are we to be salt? How are we to shine our light? You know, I get it. We're supposed to do this in a way that impacts our society. How do we do this? Let me just speak a little bit more to that. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm going to share with you right now two principles, and then I'm going to conclude with an example that we find in the Word of how this played out. The first principle. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is actually going to share a principle with us, but he does it in the context of this issue of divorce and remarriage and the confusion that there is about this in Corinth. Excuse me. And he says, so in the case in which you as a Christian are married to an unbeliever, what do you do? Now, I'm not going to get into the divorce remarriage issue, but here's something that he shares with you. I'm just going to read one verse. You right there, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 14. He says this, for the unbelieving husband, listen, has been sanctified through his wife. What? Sorry, I added that. It's not in the Greek here. And the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. 
So sanctified means set apart and made holy, or perhaps better impacted by holiness. Let me just take a minute right here to explain what he's talking about. It's not that by being a Christian in your home, your unbelieving spouse is now saved and is going to go to heaven. That's not what he's saying here. That would contradict like everything that he, he preached. It is the gospel and Jesus Christ that we need to be surrendered to. That's how we gain eternal life. Faith in Jesus Christ. So he's not contradicting himself right here. I'm going to use the term sanctifying principle. Sanctifying principle. And by this, Paul is telling us that by a believer being in a home and living according to kingdom principles, some of those kingdom principles are found in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5 that I just read from, chapter 6, chapter 7. Many of the teachings of you, those are kingdom principles. How do I live my life? Now that I'm following Jesus, how do I do this, right? Jesus then, or, or excuse me, Paul says, when the believer is doing this, the grace of God is being poured out upon that believer. Let me give you an example financial principles. There are biblical financial principles. I'm not going to get into uh, those right now, but if you live according to the way God established finances, he created all things, did he not? He even created this concept of barter and exchange and, and finances. But if you follow his principles of finances, you will be blessed. Okay? So by the way, you can tithe to the church, but yeah, I'm just kidding, just kidding. So, but when you live according to the biblical principles of finance, and we could choose any category, living according to the biblical principles of, when we do that, we are literally functioning within God's original created order. This is how I want you to live. And when we do that, God blesses, he pours out his grace, he meets our needs. Yes, when you tithe, but when you give to the poor, when you help the needy, when you are generous, and when you give to others, when you make a choice, you know what? I am not going to live just for today. I'm going to save the ant. Okay, I said I wasn't going to get into biblical principles of finance, so I'm not going to do that, all right? When we do that, God blesses. So God is now Blessing the Christian, living according to biblical principles of his kingdom, specifically in finances, and he begins to bless him financially. The unbeliever sees this, and here's what happens. Because this believer is being salt and light in his home, the unbeliever starts doing that too. The unbeliever starts reflecting that. Now, I'm not saying that this unbeliever is now a believer. He or she is not. But now, God's sanctifying influence, his grace, is being poured out upon the home. The children start living according to these principles, too. And when a home is ordered that way, even unbelievers, there is blessing poured out. Sometimes those blessings are just natural cause and effect blessings. Sometimes, though, they are supernatural blessings. Even upon unbelievers. So this is the sanctifying influence that you can have in your home if some in your home are not believers. This is the sanctifying influence you can have in your neighborhood and in your city and our nation if we live according to God's ways, his kingdom principles, God blesses. That's why righteousness exalts 
a nation. And sinfulness destroys it. So be salt, be light, and allow this sanctifying principle to operate in your life. Now turn with me real quickly to Genesis chapter 39. I'm going to call this the Joseph principle. It is basically the same principle with a different name. Now, actually, it's the same principle, but we see it in operation. So many people actually call it the Joseph principle. It's not something that's necessarily taking place in a home between husband and wife. It is Joseph living in Potiphar's life. Joseph is a follower after Yahweh, Jehovah, the one true God. And he's living his life in a way that honors God. Now, I'm going to read it to you. You'll see. Genesis 39, he says this, verse 2, The Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered. And he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, how did he do that? Did you see the image of Yahweh, or God, upon Joseph? No. Joseph didn't walk around with a little white halo over his head. Oh my goodness, that must be God. No, that's not what Potiphar saw. Potiphar saw Joseph being salt and light. That's what, that's what he saw. And the sanctifying influence, God's grace, God's blessing being poured out upon Joseph. That's what Potiphar saw. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord had, excuse me, that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. <clears throat> now Joseph is being elevated in the house of Potiphar. Potiphar uh, was a very high-ranking officer in Pharaoh's kingdom in Egypt. So there's a, when you have a large home, you have a lot of attendants, you have a lot of things, the fields and everything that goes on, both uh, domestically and politically in Potiphar's home. There's a lot that needs to be done. But Potiphar couldn't be uh, caught up in all of that. He, he had more political business in serving the Pharaoh, and so he left Joseph in charge of all of this. It's a big responsibility. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So he left in Joseph's care everything he had. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Yeah, Joseph wasn't going to eat that for him. The truth, though, is that Joseph, in this Joseph principle, actually brought blessing upon Potiphar's household. I'm just going to encourage you to live for Jesus in a way that exemplifies him and brings blessing upon the business you work for. When I go to the, the dealerships that I serve, and right now it's just, it's just one, Parksmith and of Longwood, I pray, Lord, as I am seeking to serve you in this dealership, would you bless this dealership? As I'm seeking to live according to your biblical principles, however I can do this and impact people and, and hopefully even managers in key positions that they too, if they're not going to follow Jesus, at least see integrity, see uh, the, the, the principles of God's kingdom 
in play in my life and how I interact and how I hope I'm full of integrity and how I hope I'm full of uh, faithfulness and that I don't cut corners and I try as hard as I can to produce excellence in my work, that they see this and somehow it influences them so that your blessing will be upon this business. I mean, I realize that I am not the only Christian there, okay? I realize that there's probably many Christians in that building that serve in this capacity, and even the owner himself maybe. But the truth is, that that's my prayer. God, I, I want to see the Joseph principle at play in this dealership. Live in such a way that the business you work for is now blessed by God. Because what happened here is that Potiphar saw this blessing and it impacted him. I don't know if Potiphar ever became a believer. Don't know. Maybe later on, as, as Joseph, the story unfolds, is thrown into prison for several years, and then he's elevated to second in command, then Potiphar probably said, oh yeah, big man in camp. He, yeah, I, I, all right. And maybe then he was truly impacted. I don't know. But there was an influence that Joseph had while he was in his house that impacted Potiphar and how, perhaps even how Potiphar chose to live. Because Joseph is now in charge of all of this. That's the Joseph principle. How might we be a blessing to those around us, whether it's at work or at home, the marketplace, our neighborhood, and influence them with our character and point them to Jesus? How do we do this? I'm just going to list a couple because I've got several weeks to actually lay this out for us. I'm just going to list some things for you to consider. Actually, I think there's about 10 or so here. Just going to list them quickly. You don't have to write them down. But manage your money well. That's one way. It's going to impact your family. Manage your money well. Always have a positive attitude. See the good. Be that recipient of God's grace. Serve willingly and cheerfully. Show concern for others. Be full of integrity. Don't hold back. Share your testimony and share testimonies, not just your salvation testimony, but when I'm at, at Personal Good of Longwood, I look for opportunities to just share stories about God's goodness. Let me tell you about what God did this past weekend. Let me tell you, when I was in that situation, man, it was so hard, but I discovered something. And when I did it, listen to what happened. A little testimony about living God's way when it was really hard and then how God blessed. And just looking for opportunities to share little stories, testimonies is the, the Christian uh, operative word, right? Share these stories, share these testimonies of God's goodness. And yes, your salvation testimonies as well, how you came to Christ. Pray and let them know that you're praying for them. And if you're close enough to them, maybe even asking them, so George, how can I pray for you? Very helpful especially if his name's George, right? So how can I pray for you? Let them know that you care. Do work excellently. Work hard. Be faithful. Again, I could go on and on. Let me tell you, though, about a guy in the Old Testament who chose, who was originally living in a way that was salt and light, but over time, he moved from that, and he lost his saltiness. That is what Jesus says in this text, right? Matthew 5. He says, be the salt of the, he says, 
you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its savor, its, its saltiness, how is it going to be made salty again? And I, I want to share this story with you. And it's found in Genesis, and I'm not going to read it all because it act, we'd have to look at a lot of verses. I'm just going to tell you about it. And you can then read it yourself. The man's name is Lot. Lot. Abraham's nephew. Abraham leaves his hometown with his wife and with his nephew, Lot. He, Lot's dad had died, and Abraham was pretty much taking care of him. He was incorporated into the family business as a shepherd, caring for sheep. And I'm sure the business, maybe the word would better be a sheik. A sheik is, is more of a, uh, he's a shepherd, but he has political power, he has influence. And as we read Abraham's life, when he moves to Canaan, the land of Canaan, he does have this type of influence. Uh, but I'll say shepherd anyway. Some of us don't like the term sheik. Anyway, his nephew Lot, Abraham's nephew Lot, is now trained, mentored in the ways of being a shepherd and overseeing uh, a, a lot of people, a lot of employees. And he eventually has his own sheep and his own employees to the point where his employees and Abraham's employees begin to argue. And, and Lot, I'm sure, he wants them to live in a way that's good, godly, right, loving, kind, forgiving. You know, be patient with them. But you, they don't necessarily, there's friction. So Abraham says, Lot, look, you know, your wealth is beginning to grow. Mine is as well. Look over this land and where do you want to live? And so Lot looks eastward. And he says, I want to live over there. And it was the best land around best land around. But it was also where Sodom and Gomorrah was. And Sodom and Gomorrah, even then, had a bad reputation. And we, you do discover that. I'm not just trying to pull a rabbit out of the hat. They, you find that, especially in chapter 14. I'm talking to you chapter 12. Fast forward, he moves there, and we discover in a verse that he is living close to Sodom. Lots of green grass, free food for the sheep anyway, and he grazes them here and there, and he lives in a tent close to Sodom. We come to chapter 19, and here's what we discover. Two angels are being sent to Sodom because God says, the cry against Sodom has reached my ears. I am bringing judgment. Their culture, in essence, has morphed in such a way that it is insalvageable, unredeemable. That's got to be really bad. I need to destroy it now. Wow. When they arrive in Sodom, do you know who greets them? Lot greets them. And do you know where Lot is sitting? It says he is sitting at the city gates. Now, an untrained eye would look at that and say, oh, great, so he's kicking back, end of the day, maybe sipping some, you know, sweetened tea, which is the only type of tea, right? He's sweet, sipping on some sweet tea, kicking back, sees these two guys come in. They're really angels, but they appear as men, and they come in, and it's, it's getting to be dark. And Lot approaches them, and he said, you guys, you, you, the, the business is done for the day. You can't stay in the town square. You, you don't want to do that. How about if you come with me? Do you know why Lot was sitting at the gate of the city of Sodom? That is where the elders of a city sat. He now no longer lives outside the city 
but now he is actually living in the city. He has failed to be salt and light in Sodom. Because when the guys of the city come and they say, hey, we want to take sexual advantage of these two men, Lot says, don't do that. And I'm not going to get into the details of the story. Yes, it would horrify you. But he says no. And when he says no, here's what the men say. Who made you judge over us? Maybe it's because he's like the, one of the elders in the city. But they ask that question because for the first time, apparently, Lot is shining his light, and they're thinking, what? You can't tell us what to do. Who are you? Well, Lot, where have you been? He's now living in Sodom. He loses both of his daughters to sexual immorality. They're engaged to two men that want nothing to do with righteousness. They stay behind as Lot and his two daughters and wife flee Sodom. But there is something that is still in his wife's heart so that as they flee, and the angel told them, don't do this, flee. Don't look back, just flee. And Lot's wife, it says, turns and looks back. And she turns into a pillar of salt. Who knows um, uh, biologically how that happens? But she turns into a pillar of salt. Does that sound harsh to you? And I'm going to suggest it's not for this reason. Because she had so adopted the ways of Sodom. She had invested so much in Sodom. That was her life. We don't know the whole dynamics involved. Maybe it was she that was saying to her husband, Lot, while they were living outside of Sodom, you know what, Lot? You could be a real leader in that city. You'd be, we could become wealthy rather than just being out here. Take another step up. Take another rung up in the corporate ladder. Let's move into Sodom. But as they did this, they were so corrupted by the culture, salt, Lot had lost his saltiness. And what happens when salt has lost its saltiness? What happens when you lose that fervor? Either you need a radical change, and I am I'm sure that that can happen, but when you lose it all, when there's no flavor, there's no preservation influence, there's no sanctifying influence in our life for others. The Joseph principle does not operate. We are not living for Jesus at all. Wherewith shall it be salted again? It is only good for being thrown out and trampled by the feet of men. Wow. As we go through this series, may God help us that we become salty and don't lose our saltiness. I'm going to conclude with this. So around 1982 is when my wife impacted, or at least tried to impact this fellow worse. She didn't just say that she was a Christian, but she really was. But she had gotten caught up in this 
culture in America, having the boyfriend move in, obviously sleeping with him. And she was quickly, very quickly losing her saltiness. And Meredith saw this and begged her, truly begged her to follow Jesus again. Move out from this boyfriend. Pursue Jesus, just graciously, lovingly calling her to follow Jesus. No change. Fast forward now, it's about five or six years. I'm in seminary. I'm not in Pembroke Pines. Meredith is not in Pembroke Pines. We're married. We have 2.2 kids at that point, I think. We, uh, that, that's the national average I last heard. But here we are. I think we've got two kids. And we are in, uh, at Regent University in Virginia Beach, Virginia. They have an outreach uh, uh, program, a food pantry, they called it, in which you could go, and for $1, you could get like two bags of groceries. I'm not even sure why they charge you $1. But you, if you paid $1, you would get these bags of groceries. And there was a line of people, regent students and their families. They were lined up just like every week, and they would give their dollar, and they would be able to collect two bags of groceries, I believe it was. There's a lady standing in front of her. And she turns around to, to see who's behind her, and she pauses and turns around. And Meredith and her, she, they're just looking at each other. And Meredith says, I know you from somewhere. Who are you? And she says her name, and it is the nurse that she knew five or six years ago that summer. That Meredith sought to call out of the darkness that she was moving toward. To be salt and light once again. And the girl said, Meredith, I need to tell you. When I share my testimony about how I have how I came to Christ, and how I pursued Christ, you're always a part of that testimony. Because I remembered the words that you said, and I left that boyfriend, and I am now seeking to live for Jesus with every bit in me today. You're a part of my testimony everywhere I go to give it. She was a Regent University student, I think, in counseling, what an encouragement to my wife. All of these years thinking I tried so hard, but nothing. See, church, so many times when we're salt and light, we don't see that. We don't have those opportunities six or seven years later for them to turn around and say, you changed my life. Wow. But church, I want to tell you this. The people that you work, work with, the neighbors who see Jesus in you, they may not tell you. But if you're truly living for Jesus, you're impacting them. Continue to do that. And we'll learn how we can do it even more. But continue to do that in a way so that maybe one day, and if not here on earth in heaven, they may see you and they're going to say, Sarah, thank you for living for Jesus for me. Thank you for this. Cole, thank you. When I worked with you, I remember that day in which you drove a nail through your thumb or you pounded it with a hammer. I think that happened one time, didn't it? Yes, right through his finger with a, with a what type of a gun, a, uh, a nail gun. Boom! He had to wait there all night till the next person. No, he didn't either, but <laughs> hanging out, right? But thank you because you influenced me. I'm kind of thinking if the guy was there, why didn't he help you pull it? Anyway, but th they didn't see Cole blow his cool when this happened or that. What an influence. Can we live that way? Can we live in a way that is salt 
and it makes the gospel attractive in a way that helps bring morality and impacts others that they start living for Jesus in this sanctifying influence that God looks upon our nation in this desperate time and our nation begins to rise up and say, I will live according to the ways of God. How amazing would that be? That we as Christians are light in this dark world because that's what they need. Make that choice every day. Church, let's be salt and light wherever we are, and impact those around us always. Amen. Can you stand with me? Jesus, thank you for your word. It's fresh. I just pray, Father, every day, make this word, this challenge to be salt and light, fresh in our spirits. Call us to this, God, every day. Lord, we're, we're giving you our hearts. And we're just saying, God, please, if, if I am in this process of losing my saltiness, God, please make me salty again before it's too late. Please, God, I'm, I want to live for you. I want to shine Jesus today. And I just thank you, Father, for what you're going to be doing over the next several weeks and showing us how to do this, being salt and light in our, in our world today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.